0: I'm Professor Neil Feinstein, and this is Conversations with the Creators. Sponsored by St. John's Master's Program in Integrated Advertising Communications, ideas thrive here. Howie Canopco, Senior Vice President, Account Services at Publisys. More specifically, Howie works at a fantastic Publisys agency called Roxa. I said that right, right?
1: You did, yeah. <laughs> oh, Roxa. <good.
0: laughs> Roxa. He and his team develop omni channel campaigns, and Howie is particularly expert at content marketing and SEO. He's also particularly expert at being an innovator, having founded multiple companies including Hawaii wear, from his dorm room in 1999, and NetSurance, which was sold in 2010. Congratulations. Uh, (laughs) Howie is a busy guy, but always finds time to give back and inspire individuals, which syncs with St. John's mission to serve the underserved. Today, we're going to focus on Howie's time at a company called Conductor. Back in 2018, Conductor was bought by WeWork, the co-working giant. In 2019, Conductor bought itself back from WeWork. What happened at WeWork is today's topic. Hiya, Howie.
1: Hey, Neil. How's it going?
0: By the way, you notice that, ha- well, you can't see it. It's a, it's a podcast, but he's smiling because Howie just got back from his honeymoon. In Hawaii. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs>
1: Thank you very much. We wore a, a spacesuit on the plane. So, uh, if you're listening to this now, this is probably recorded uh, when, you know, hopefully things have gotten better by the time you're listening to it, but it's still a pretty cautious period. So, yeah, we were a full spacesuit, but you know what? It was absolutely worth it uh, getting that time back. And now we're on a Feels like another tropical island right now in uh, in Manhattan. Oh my god! Um, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well,
0: you were smiling when we work board conductor. I remember you telling me about it. And at this core, this is kind of a story of a fast going brand, WeWork, that made some really bad decisions, and then the brand went down in flames. Or did it go down in flames? So let's start at the beginning. How how did WeWork get started? Howie.
1: Yeah, so starting at the beginning, uh, you have two visionary founders. Uh, you have uh, Adam Newman and Miguel McGavy and uh, w- from two very, very different uh, backgrounds, um, they started a co-working space together uh, out in Brooklyn. They they they'd sold that, and you know they had the opportunity to uh, acquire some more, or just lease some more real estate. And, you know, build out something a little bit further. Now they have some capital. Um, I, I remember, you know, as legend goes, they were debating the name of this new co-working space for a while. And, uh, you know, as the story goes, they're, they're, they're sitting on the couch and someone said, uh, you know, there, there's iPhone, there's iPod, it's me, me, me. We need the opposite. We want to create something that's about we. And getting people together, we work. Um, that should be the name of this new co-working space. And they also looked at it as this would be the platform for other things they could do as well. Other ways they can have more communal uh, living, more communal banking, more communal kind of everything, starting with the WeWork platform. So they founded that first WeWork um, and the buzz around it grew like crazy. It was something completely different uh, than uh, the, the market had really seen before. Now, co-working, was defined so many different ways. And there were companies like uh, like Regis uh, and others. We can just rent some space for a fixed amount of time, usually years. Uh, if your company had grown really fast, well, just going to have to break down a wall, get a new space, move everything. Um, and we work with the flexible leases, with the different sizes of office space, and just the really, um, really positive work environment. Uh, just it offered the market something completely different, uh, and that's what really helped to uh, get them started on the fast track. So,
0: so, the, so the brand differentiator. Let's look. Let's take a look at it through a brand lens. The brand differentiators were like Zipcar going in into the rental car market, where now you could rent cars by the hour instead of rent cars by the day. So you could now rent office space and a limited amount of time. You didn't have to rent it. You didn't have to sign a long term lease they spent a lot of time on culture, creating an environment that people would wanna hang around in. Um, They made decisions about how the space looked and every space, while it all looked, each space was individually designed, they all looked a little bit different, but they all felt like it was the same place. Um, And then the people who started, who were attracted to, who were the people that were attracted to that kind of an environment, that kind of a culture?
1: You know the, the the there's the clear business props uh the, the value props that would be attractive to a small startup right where I, I can flex my office space really fast um there's a lot of things that as a small business owner i don't want to think about i want to think about wi-fi or coffee or toilet paper um, or electric bills and uh all, everything else that comes to even building out a space right let alone scaling a space let alone the fixed costs they'd have to commit to to get that space. So we were took care of a lot of those things. And not only that, they created this environment where you wanted to be there. You wanted to show up early. You wanted to leave late. You wanted to do that for a number of reasons. It could be the premium coffee offerings. It could be all the kombucha on tap. I'm sure the bathrooms were a little interesting because of that. Uh, it could be because of the, uh, the, the beer on tap offerings, the events that they would hold the just clashing of, of members of different companies who would meet in that kitchen, meet in these just open areas and have conversations and learn from each other's perspectives and backgrounds to create something uh, completely new. Um, there was something that was really special about that environment that they were able to create that you just wouldn't find at uh, most corporate headquarters, especially if you're a, you're a small startup or let's say you're a satellite office of a larger company and let's say you were that satellite in in New York or San Francisco or Chicago uh, that they were able to create that environment you wanted to be a part of, which was fascinating.
0: and And it seemed like they cared about your growth. I remember I did a little project with a friend of mine who's a brand strategist who has her own consulting business, and we needed we needed a digital, you know a, a, an information architect. and we w- and she had space at we work. And they had a directory where we could go out to other WeWork members who were digital, who were information architects and talk to them about it and maybe even partner with them. So that it's not only was it a cool environment or is it, it's still there, is a cool environment to go work. And you feel like you're hanging around with other entrepreneurs, other innovators, other small business owners. It's everybody is there. We're, we're in it together. We're working together to grow your business, to make you a success, to make your dream come true, which is a pretty powerful emotional place to live.
1: It, it really is. The, the, those community elements of the culture, they were there from the core, um, probably starting from when um, Adam Newman was growing up on a kibbutz in Israel, which is a communal style of living. Uh, Miguel grew up, with communal style living in the United States. And being able to have that very unique perspective to being able to create architecture and an environment and a layout that really enables and unlocks how the, every individual's what they would call superpowers, where nice. they're, they're in that environment where they can just really thrive. It was, it, it was incredible, uh, the, the environments that they built to really um, foster that collaboration, that excitement and enthusiasm from members across the board, and Neil, to your point, um, it was more than just a space. A lot of members would say it was a it was a community that they were a part of. Uh, whether they were learning in some of the seminars together, teaching each other uh, expertise, um, whether they were just meeting each other with happy hour, providing each other with services and products, it really was a community that supported each other, uh, which was just another differentiator that WeWork had versus this competitive set, which you know, when you go down to business metrics, uh, leads to higher occupancy rates, uh, pretty quickly, higher member retention, higher growth, uh, amongst existing members. I mean, there were some metrics that made wall street very excited uh, about WeWork, at so, least at the time.
0: So let's live there because I think that that's really interesting. So they, they had, they put the brand together in the right way. They had a clear understanding of their target audience and then they just started going crazy. I mean, like, uh, how many, you know, I just remember getting off the subway. Every time I would get off the subway, I would see a WeWork. So all of a sudden, there are all these WeWorks showing up. There's not as many Reguses at, around. I can only <laughs> think of one, but every neighborhood seemed to have a WeWork. Talk yeah, about how this, how this growth got fueled and the implications of that.
1: You know, there was so much demand for their offering. And year after year, WeWork was was doubling or more than doubling in space, employees, um, revenue, and you know, with that growth came the attention of a lot of really big investors, uh, most notably SoftBank. Um, when you think about real estate, real estate is a multi-trillion-dollar asset class. Um, WeWork was redefining what office space could be like. And there was this enormous demand, no matter how fast they were growing and scaling, more and more businesses wanted to be part of WeWork.
0: Can I just, um, one clarification. So WeWork never, did they own the buildings for their offices or did, were they just renting and then re re-rent, re-renting, re or subleasing, I guess you would call it?
1: So there there were, I'm going to give you a little bit of a non-answer because there were a lot of different structures, um, leasing structures that they were uh, employing. Um, Some, you know, a a legendary office purchase that they made was the former Lord and Taylor building, right? Where at least partially that was going to be a WeWork headquarters. They were involved in some level of real estate acquisition, but for the most part, it was leasing. And they tried a lot of different structures because they were realizing things later on. They're realizing that if we put WeWorks in a building, it made the other real estate in that building worth more. So how does WeWork benefit from that in terms of um, you know, getting more sweet or favorable pricing terms, right? So there are a lot of different structures, um, but owning, I f- believe was a smaller portion of it. It was more kind of building out, uh, getting longer term leases um, and trying to occupy them as fast as they can.
0: So it's kind of, I guess I remember back to the 80s when Revlon was buying every company and then selling off all the individual companies and the, the, the price of the individual companies being sold, they were making more money on that than the cost of buying the whole larger company. So it's kind of like that model. We're, rent- we're renting this office, or we're buying this office space for X amount of dollars. But if we rent little pieces of it, in, in totality, it would be cost us more, you would earn more, the revenue would be more than what your, your expense was.
1: Correct? Yeah, so, so absolutely right. Breaking it down from a PL perspective and let's talk about it on a, on a kind of a, a one location basis. Right. Um, they would get a very favorable deal buying out, let's say, hypothetically, it was three floors, five floors uh, in a building that had a lot of open space. So they really wanted the space to get occupied um, and we work with subdivide a lot of that space across a number of different sized uh, offices. You'd have your common spaces there as well and common facilities, but by subdividing it, they're able to get a lot more revenue on that space than they were paying for that space. In addition to that, you know, oftentimes you'd have pretty long-term leases. So at, at a relatively low price in terms of increase year after year, um, so that profitability of that one location would just get more and more as the years go on. And they're able to increase their rates, um, outpacing even just the that fixed cost of that long-term lease. So from a unit perspective, it's, it was a very profitable uh, and attractive proposition for for investors.
0: So it sounds like I mean what how do, how do, how, do you, how do you how do you how do you go wrong with that you've got a brand you've got the finances you've got the ROI you've got you know you've got the customers what's what you tell me enlighten me Howie. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right so the movie's starting off really sweet right, right. and uh, you know what, what 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 happens and you know the the proposition gets even sweeter right i think uh, as WeWork was getting into more markets globally, uh, not just the, the United States and, and not just Israel, but um, growing all over Europe and South America um, and really kind of redefining what coworking could be in all these different locations, um, having subsidiaries and uh, partnerships in China. I mean, it was really uh, an incredible growth um, all around the world and very rapidly. Uh, and that revenue growth was uh, enormous. Um, it, all the investment we were getting, it enabled WeWork to make some pretty strategic acquisitions. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, um, I was a part of an organization called the Conductor. Uh, we work as a client of ours. They ended up acquiring us. We specialized in uh, organic marketing and SEO. Um, they bought a number of other organizations too. Uh, they bought Meetup uh, that really specialized in getting folks together uh, in social events. They bought a number of uh, different startups that that specialized in. Uh, office technology, office management, Uh, a lot of what they call prop tech or property management technology. So even if you weren't renting from WeWork, um, you'd probably still be a customer of WeWork to manage your space. Uh, They had Powered by We, which was a design offering as WeWork was getting really good at designing offices that that created collaborative environments and different companies, uh, Sprint, which later got acquired by T-Mobile Uh, leveraged WeWork to build out their headquarters. One of many examples of WeWork just going into all these different areas. Uh, And they were also attracting uh, enterprise organizations, much more, the roots started with small companies, but more and more you'd have satellite offices of different organizations. In some cases, entire floors of WeWork just dedicated to those companies. So you know, there were so many different growth avenues and having that space, being able to do the meetup events at night, uh, they bought the Flatiron School to teach coding, um, all of a sudden, they had these. They were leveraging their space a lot more than other companies were leveraging their space, right? By just having it provide value uh, more hours than the traditional workday. So, the, you know, this really was a, a rocket ship or uh, a very fast unicorn as they were growing, and that's how they were able to raise so much money. You have this disruptive organization with this really strong vision, strong brand growing globally um, where, you know, there's just so much demand for their offerings. They almost couldn't keep up. So that's all the positive. It's a really strong case right. if you're an, an investor. And, you know, when you see these metrics, you see the passion behind the brand, you're thinking, this is the next Facebook. This is the next Amazon or Google. And that's what got a lot of investors, uh, really excited. That's what got employees pretty excited. Right. Um, so you'd ask what happened, yeah. right? Because at least as of recording, this is not the next Amazon. No. Uh, at least in terms <laughs> of market cap, oh, <laughs> this is no. not the next multi-trillion-dollar company. Um, Please is
0: of... my investment window now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, well, you know what? We'll, we'll talk about that um, and you know where we are today, because it's still a pretty interesting. Um, you know, it, it's interesting how they're able to go into and out of the the pandemic. Recession, so many folks at home, yet we were still survived. But um, so, you know, it it is a very interesting uh, story moving forward with still a lot of questions and history to be written. But as you mentioned, the IPO collapsed. Right. Right. So, what happened there? Well, you know, I I mentioned if you look at one office and how it could be very profitable, especially if you have occupancy rates uh, or you're getting occupancy very fast after Mm -hmm. opening, Mm -hmm. the reality is standing up a location. Uh, so actually you know, pick it out, if it's a new country, get the tax structures all set up, um, actually build it out, get the furniture, do all the work, open it up, do some marketing. Um, it, it's really expensive, especially when you're doubling year after year after year. Building these new locations is extremely, extremely um, intensive to the bottom line. So if we were to stop growing, and just say, we're, we're done building. We're just going to fill up any spaces that are unoccupied right now. It's a very different company from a P&L perspective. But um, what was so attractive to Wall Street and the investors was this company is able to double their revenue even after the revenue is a billion dollars. They can double that quick. There's that much demand for people to be in a WeWork. That's exciting. So. They were encouraged by their investors, uh, at least based upon everything that I've, I've observed. You know, They were encouraged by their investors uh, to keep doubling. The problem is they were spending so much money to double that revenue. And that created a very unprofitable company because it's so expensive to stand these things up. Um, I would say cost management probably wasn't something they were the most well-known for. Um, and there were probably a lot of efficiencies that could have been gained there. Um, but really you add it up. You have a company that was hemorrhaging money. Uh, This is The bank account was really shrinking very fast. Uh, And then you have an S1. So that's what you file when you're going public that raised a lot of concerns. There were a lot of red flags to investors about the management structure, ownership structure, a lot of corporate disclosures that really made investors very weary about uh, investing more of their capital in a company that is very unprofitable, despite the growth in terms of revenue. Um, And these red flags, many about the CEO, Adam Newman, um, really had folks concerned. And that's what led to the IPO failure, where they pulled it back, they weren't able to raise the capital, had to lay off thousands uh, of employees, uh, all in a matter of uh, maybe a couple months, uh, just to survive, which, you know, they had this rocket that all of a sudden came, you know, uh, crashing down at a, at a pretty rapid pace. So that's, that was the, you know, the boom of WeWork, but followed by that you know, pretty enormous bust that we're seeing documentaries on, on Hulu and there's a new series coming out um, on all these uh, different networks uh, about kind of what happens and you know, how things change so quickly from, uh, from really great to really bad fast.
0: If I go to Lord and Ta- what used to be Lord and Taylor's on Fifth Avenue, it's there, isn't it? Did they sell that? I mean, I my point is, I'm still yeah. seeing WeWorks around. I live in Manhattan, so it's easy enough to see them. They're still here, right? Yeah. It, are they going away? Is this not going to work? Are they? You know.
1: Look, t- Give t- time me a happy will... ending. <laughs> <laughs> time is going to tell, right? So the the, the story started um, really promising. And uh, that growth was fast. The excitement was fast. And being an employee, even just being a subsidiary uh, of WeWork and seeing that enormous growth and being a part of it, knowing a lot of what you're doing is helping to redefine how people work and create a better environment. You spend so many hours a day at work and to do it in a way you're going to be more productive, have a more fulfilling life, um, to really, uh, you know, make a life, not a living, um, and do what you love. A lot of these, I'm throwing WeWork catchphrase in there on purpose, but yeah. that's truly what we all believed. And being a part of that was was amazing. Now, what's equally amazing is WeWork survived. They survived the, the S1 collapsing, the IPO collapsing, and it forced WeWork very rapidly to become uh, an organization that at least was at break-even uh, and had a very rapid path to profitability. WeWork divested the vast majority of its subsidiaries. Um, so anything that was a non-core business, for example, WeWork was trying to disrupt uh, living with WeLive. Uh, WeWork had own uh, uh, Meetup and just so many other subsidiaries divested them uh, to try to raise some capital. Uh, WeWork in, raised- in conductor. <laughs> that's right. Uh, conductor as well was divested. Um, and this restructuring in, in a way, might have helped save WeWork and really position WeWork well for the long-term. So a much slimmer, more efficiently managed WeWork from a profit loss standpoint um, was able to then go into what nobody expected, a, a pandemic where no one's working in an office space and survive, something that no one really would have foreseen, not just not foreseeing a pandemic, but uh, these things don't seem to add up. And you know, a lot of WeWork strengths were again shining during the pandemic. -hmm. Um, It provided a place not far from your home where you can go and work, a a good environment. um, You know, as we think about what work is going to look like in the future, um, having a more distributed uh, office environment where it's not just that one corporate headquarters, but I could, um, I have the location in Austin, the location in uh, Tel Aviv, the location uh, in Long Island, wherever I want to work from having that environment nearby me Mm -hmm. with a few coworkers, being able to have all the technology to uh, connect remotely to uh, the rest of our offices, it's really attractive. Mm. Um, That's scalability too, not being locked into really long-term real estate deals. That's really attractive as well. Um, A lot of those benefits are shining again uh, as we come out of this pandemic with almost a new light on work. And what does return to office mean? How can we work in a better environment? How do we build back better and transform? And so many of those things that made WeWork special are really resonating right now. That's a reason WeWork has survived. That's a reason why um, yeah, WeWork uh, as of recording is going through uh, a SPAC deal. So a special purpose acquisition corporation um, that's bringing WeWork public. Um, I believe the ticker at the moment is, is called BOWX, B-O-W-X. And you know, that's a way for folks to invest in WeWork for investors who are currently investing in WeWork to get liquidity um, and probably provide them with more capital to continue that growth.
0: So it's really just, so what you're saying is it's just smart fiscal management to grow the right way. It's not the the kid in the candy store approach.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you need that you need that passion and vision and they had that and they had a great brand and they had fantastic marketing. Um, but in the end P and L management is equally as important, right?
0: Yeah. So what, so what are the lessons learned? I mean, what, so you're saying the office environment is going to survive. Is this a model for the office of the future? Um, this, you know, I've been talking oh, I've been talking with a lot of people over these past weeks, a lot of agency people, and they're saying, well, I, I'm gonna go into the office two or three days a week, and then I'm gonna work at home, which is nice. You know, uh, I spoke to somebody yesterday who said, well, I think oh, people should only come into the office if there's some sort of collaborative situation where you need, you know, where we need to sit around and whiteboard. But, you know, if you're home, maybe you're more productive just you and your laptop and instead sort of sitting in rows of computers with your, with your earbuds plugged in <laughs> and you're not distracted by the people around you and the bagels in the back behind you.
1: <laughs> oh, you're, you're getting me hungry about those uh, thinking about those bagels behind us.
0: Right. Bagel Friday. <laughs>
1: oh, the office is sounding, uh, sounding pretty good. Um, you know, it's, it, it's interesting. Um, you have a lot of folks who are on the road right. and I'll tell you one of the one of the most interesting benefits of the period where I was a WeWork employee was being able to have that meeting in Boston, uh, have that meeting in Minneapolis, and um, I could just book a conference room at a WeWork. I could just go to a WeWork. Um, if I needed a restroom in New York City, usually you can't find a pleasant one. Go into a WeWork. Um, but that that flexibility to just find uh, a WeWork wherever I was 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 really great, it allowed me to be so much more productive, hold meetings, uh, get collaborative, use those whiteboards, drink that great coffee. Um, and it, you know it, that model I can see uh, rolling out as uh, more of a product, um, if I had to guess, that's something that's probably interesting to uh, a lot of folks who travel pretty frequently as travel comes back online. Um, but
0: Although I don't know that it's gonna come back online as fast as it, I, I mean, I have a brother-in-law who had one of those jobs he travels. Through, he used to travel three days out of every week. And he's having the same meetings on Zoom and it, the business is moving ahead just fine.
1: Yeah, it, you know, it's true. Um, and I, I think a lot is yet to be determined about yeah. how, you know, COVID being an accelerant, as um, mm-hmm. uh, I'm a big fan of uh, Professor Scott Galloway and he would say that uh, COVID's accelerant of a lot of these trends. And so it's interesting to see where things normalize. Uh, Post COVID, right? And when you think about uh, how folks will travel, will they travel as much, especially for business? It's TBD. But there's a few things that are certain at the moment. Despite how good Zoom is and, and, and Blue Jeans mm-hmm. and other technology, you can't email a handshake. No. Um, you can't really have that authentic um, beer after work when it's a Zoom happy hour with 16 people, and it can be more awkward. Uh, In addition to that, you'll you'll see businesses that use travel as a differentiator, almost a competitive advantage, right? Look, our competitors, they'll be over Zoom. We're going to be right there. We'll be right with you in the trenches, helping to fix your IT, helping to work with you on this advertising campaign. We'll sit on site with you. And then all of a sudden, business travel could be a differentiator. Uh, I would imagine a lot of companies, especially the ones that have the capital to invest in travel for their employees would benefit. From being the first to uh, to meet their clients there and provide the help they need. Mm-hmm.
0: So, so, uh, so, what other lessons did we learn from the WeWork saga? You know, we learned how important <laughs> culture is. <laughs> we learned we got a peek inside the the office space of the future. Um, any anything yeah. else come to mind?
1: Well. Yeah, Fiscal management so there's, clearly, <laughs> there's a lot P&L management, uh, corporate oversight. Yeah, uh, that's, that's a really big uh, element, right? Uh, the need to always have a clear path to profitability. Now, a lot of companies will say that um, they're not profitable yet. They're some of the uh, largest uh, by market cap companies in the world. And they'll say they're barely turning a profit. And that's okay. But there's a clear path to profitability if they were to stop investing pretty quickly. And that was something that um, you know, WeWork probably didn't have nearly as much of as a lot of these other companies. So that clear path to profitability is key. Corporate oversight and governance, uh, particularly when it comes to um, rules and regulations around what a CEO can do, what a leadership team can and cannot do. Um, those were things that I, I think went to harm WeWork. Um, also, WeWork, and this is personal opinion, but I don't believe WeWork had ever really grown up. WeWork was still throwing uh, what they call summer camp and they were sending uh, the majority of their employee base somewhere around the world. And it was incredible being an employee, uh, but you had unlimited alcohol and unlimited food trucks and all these uh, different bands performing and, and activities like archery and uh, different things in, in, in a pond and um, their, their version of kind of the X Games or Tough Mudder. It was really cool. But at some point there's, there's a lot of liability yeah. um, that will open up. And that's just an example, uh, and I, I absolutely loved it. And I think it kept the, the culture there even as we work got larger and larger. but um, you know, those types of things where there wasn't as much oversight and there wasn't as much governance and you go to the S1, you see a lot of the different elements that were disclosed, such as um, the CEO, um, trademarking, we, WE and then selling that trademark back to his own company mm-hmm. for millions of dollars, or taking out loans from the company and using those loans to acquire office space and then lease that office space to the company. A lot of that, what they call double dealing that was revealed in that S1 filing made investors very concerned. Um, they saw the, the voting rights of the common shares and it seems it was almost nearly impossible uh, for the CEO to uh, be replaced and Uh, you know, that really got them concerned. So greater corporate oversight is a tremendous lesson as well. And um, no matter how successful the business is from the get-go, how visionary uh, a leader, uh, she or he is, making sure that governance is there, you have advisors who've really been there before that are relied on and trusted. uh, Those are fundamental things that any business that's growing like a rocket ship would benefit from and, and learn from what happened with WeWork. And by the way, a couple of disclaimers. Uh, this is all based on my best knowledge uh, in case <laughs> anything is mildly uh, incorrect, as well as um, I, I no longer have uh, any shares or options in, in WeWork. So not not vested, invested anyway uh, in the subject. Just want to disclose those couple things.
0: Well, thank you. Since you've just been talking about governance, yes, that's a good thing to disclose. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. That, that is a That is a great story. I think, I think it's really, you know, from a, from a brand point of view for the students, it's a great story. From a corporate governance and leadership point of view, it's a really great story. Um, from a sense of, you know, the work environment that all of these, all of my students will be walking into someday as they walk out of here, because I know more and more companies are trying to set up that kind of, um, environment, you know, bagel Fridays and, and open offices, like you're working in the Mac store, everybody, there's no such thing as walls and collaboration is such a key word. All of that really seems to have taken hold and driven, driven what we work was and will be something that's very important as we move forward, come out of the, co- out of COVID and into our new, our new environment. One last question, um, you knew it's coming. What is that one piece of advice that the uh, you need to give the students that they have to hear, and only you can tell them?
1: You know, that piece of advice is, yeah, a lot of people say follow your passion, right? Um, I would say follow the intersection of your passion, what you're good at, and what will take you toward your financial goals as well. So if you're very good at marketing, very good at law, you, you might love art a bit more, but know where your strengths are, play to your strengths. Uh, I think that'll lead to a much more successful career, uh, happier life overall. It's, it's easier to say, just do what you love, right? And if you do what you love, do what you're good at. Um, that's really that best combination that'll set you up for the most success. And that's,
0: Thank you so much, Howie.
1: Such a pleasure. Thank you so much, Neil,
0: And thank you, everyone, for for listening in. This has been Conversations with the Creators, sponsored by St. John's University's Graduate Program in Integrated Advertising Communications. Special thanks to all who helped put together this podcast, including Professor Audrey Siegel-Mavora, Kevin James, Professor Edrix Fontanilla, and our producer, Lucy Aquaro. Keep on ideating.